Where do you lean when life gets difficult? Let me, let me explain it this way. Let me ask it this way. What do you think of when you think of strength? Or what do you think of when you think of power? What is power? Is it good or evil? Yes. It seems that some people want power, some are afraid of power, some need power, and yet we all have a certain measure of power, whether we know it or not. You've got some power, but your power is limited. People in Texas had power, and then they realized that their power was limited. Andy Crouch has called power the ability to make something of our world. I think we all want to make something of the world, and so does God. We're going to talk about power this morning. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, as we look at your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me, fill each of us. Whether we're in the sanctuary or online, Holy Spirit, would you come, open our minds, our hearts, our hands to receive all that you want us to experience today, that we may be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Christ Jesus we pray, amen. Well, last Sunday, we returned to our study of Mark. We, we typically go verse by verse through the Bible, and we've been in a, about a four-year study of the book of Mark with quite a few breaks in between. But we're looking at Mark chapter 10, and if you have your Bibles, you may want to uh, prepare as we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 today. The more we know about Jesus, the more we will know Jesus, and the more we know Jesus, the more we'll become like Jesus because you are your friends. The people that you hang around with will influence you and you will influence them. And so the more time we can spend with Jesus, the more time we get to know Jesus, the more we're naturally going to become like him. And I don't know about you, but I want to be more like Jesus. But it doesn't come by my effort and my trying harder. It comes by me being mentored by Jesus, by me spending time with him in his word, doing life together with Christ, seeing the things that he saw, reading the things that he spoke experiencing the things that he did. I want a relationship with Jesus. And he wants to be known, not just known in the sense of know about someone, but he wants a relationship with you and he wants a relationship with me. He wants to be known and yet there's so many obstacles that stand in the way, most notably our other gods and idols that we talked about last week. It seems like there's three primary obstacles that, that have affected people from the very beginning of time. And their money, which we talked about last Sunday, sex, and our subject today is power. John Mark, the writer of the gospel, or the, the good news of Mark, he says this, uh, verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the, the, the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. So Jesus is with his friends. They're heading to Jerusalem. And if you know the context of the story at all, much like we are on the calendar right now, Holy Week is approaching. So Jesus says, hey guys, we're going to go celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, I'm going to die. That wasn't part of their plan. That wasn't their expectation at all. In fact, their expectation was he was the Messiah. He was going to come and rule and reign. He was going to overthrow Rome, 
which was the message of Palm Sunday, save us now, Hosanna, save us now, come in power, take over. And even though Jesus tells them, we see that they're clueless. This is the third time he says it. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, this alone must have been kind of strange because then it says they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. The religious people are going to kill me, he's saying. No, not the murderers, not the scum of the earth, not even the, the government. No, the religious people are going to kill me. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles who are going to mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. And then he sticks in this little note that they forgot. They really forgot. They must have just gotten distracted. I would have been distracted thinking my best friend is going to get killed and he knows this and he's leading us to Jerusalem where he's going to die. Three days later, he'll rise. We know that. They forgot it. No wonder they were astonishment and fear. Jesus couldn't have been more clear about what was going to happen and they were afraid for their lives. And yet everything occurred exactly the way that he said it was going to happen. Now, I understand there are skeptics who may think that, well, well, maybe Mark, maybe he put all this together. See, none of this really happened, but Jesus died, and so, so we'll, we'll just kind of create this story that Jesus knew what he was talking about, which is a plausible theory historically until you realize that, well, maybe John Mark could have taken some circumstances and, and written it back to appear prof- prophetic, you can't do that with Isaiah and the Psalms and all these other prophets that hundreds of years earlier predicted the events that occurred in Jesus' life. See, I don't follow Jesus just because mom and dad took me to church. I don't follow Jesus because it's a religious thing to do. I follow Jesus because there is evidence, more than enough evidence, that shows me that this is true, this is real, this can be trusted, you can take this to the bank, you can build your life on it. There is wisdom, there is hope, there is peace, there is joy, there is understanding, there's discernment that comes from this. And you can build your life on what the Toledo Blade says, you can build your life on what Oprah says, or whoever your favorite talk show host is. You can build your life on your favorite politician, or athlete, or TV star, Let me tell you, they're all going to die. Or you can build your life on Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Family, God's word can be trusted because God can be trusted. God knows the future God is omniscient, as we said earlier. He's all-knowing. The crucifixion was no accident at all. It was part of God's plan, even though the disciples themselves were clueless. And here's the thing. This is so true in our day, too. God is in control. God knows what's going on. I was talking to my friend Josh Kaiser, pastor at One Hope Church across town this week, and he said, if there's one thing that I want my generation to know, it's that God is good. He said, that's, that's, that's the primary thing I want. I want, him, I want people to know that God is good. In fact, God is good all the time. And all the time, 
how can God be good when I'm going through this? You don't understand, Pastor. How can God be good when this is my story, this is my plight in life, this is my situation? If only you knew, you couldn't say that God is good. And I'm reminded of the preacher who said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Family, no matter what you're going through right now, and I know some of you are going through some really deep weeds. You're going through some really tough storms right now. But I'm here to declare that God is good. He's good all the time. He is in control. He knows what's going on. And your story's not over yet. You just wait. Your story is not over yet. God is good. He can be trusted. And in the meantime, if you need to, you can pray the prayer that I always pray. Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. My faith is weak. I want to believe in you. I want to trust you. So now we move to a most interesting conversation in, chapter, in verse 35. James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Hey, Jesus, can you be our genie for a moment? We, we'd like you to just, just do us one favor. Just promise to do anything that we ask you. Give us a blank check, Jesus. I mean, you are our friend after all. After all, you know, you know Jesus, you know that, that, that the two of us, we are two of your three best friends. I mean, we know that Peter, James, and John were Jesus' three best friends. So, you know, I mean, we're the brothers and stuff. So would you just, would you just give us a blank check? <laughs> and Jesus... Jesus is actually willing to play along because he says, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? What do you want Jesus to do for you today? I mean, really, if, if you had a blank check, if Jesus came to you and said, I'll do whatever you want. What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? Their response is quite remarkable, I think. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. Translation, we want the two best seats in heaven for eternity. That's not asking much, is it? Talk about audacious. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? See, Jesus knows what lies ahead for himself, death. And when we, when we follow Jesus, it means following him everywhere, including the cross. Some people want to follow Jesus to the empty tomb, but they're not willing to follow him to the cross. They're willing to follow Jesus in all of his glory, but they don't want to follow Jesus in his sufferings. See, some of us have been told the message of Jesus is, follow Jesus, pray this prayer, you'll be happy, everything will be wonderful. There's this whole heresy that's been going on. It's not new, it's actually going on for thousands of years, that basically Jesus wants you rich and happy and healthy all the time. It's a lie. 
Because in order to follow Jesus, you have to follow him into his sufferings in order to experience resurrection. There is no Easter without Good Friday. Following Jesus means following him everywhere, including the cross. And that's what Jesus is telling James and John. He's saying, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to go where I'm going? Because I'm the suffering servant. I'm the one who's going to lay down my life for others. That's what true love is. It's not about accumulating stuff for yourself. It's about serving and giving away. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people come to life. It's not all fun and games. You take the bad with the good, the hard with the easy, the suffering with the comfort, the pain with the glory. But here's the thing, family. Whatever price you pay for following Christ is going to be worth it. Forever and ever and ever. And it'll be nothing compared to the price that he paid for you. So these audacious brothers, James and John, they answered, we can. Yep, Jesus, sure, fine, well, that, whatever, we'll, we'll do whatever you ask. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Jesus says they'll suffer and die, and they did. It's believed that all the disciples were martyrs, except for John, who was exiled island of Patmos and was boiled in hot oil at one point. I think I'd rather die than be boiled in hot oil. Jesus doesn't invite us to a life of pleasure and parties. The invitation is to come and die so that we can truly live. Again, any sacrifice we make, it'll be worth it for eternity. See, some people have turned Christianity into what's called moral therapeutic deism, which means if you just have a sprinkle of God, he'll make you happy and well and and just make you feel better. Because you all know the idol of our day really isn't money. I don't think it's even sex or power. It's pleasure. That we feel good. If it feels good, just do it. And if it doesn't feel good, well, you better not do that. If it doesn't make you happy, you better stay away. It can't be God's will if it, makes me ha- if it doesn't make me happy. Because God wants me happy, happy, happy. He's not opposed to your happiness, but that's not his highest priority. His highest priority is for you to be holy, not to be happy. He continues. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those who have been prepared. James and John, you guys, you follow me well. You're, you're two of my three best friends. I love you. You're asking a crazy request. I can't, even, I, I, I can't even answer that. I don't even know what to tell you. It's not for me. We don't know who will sit beside Jesus or if it really matters. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. This is one of the most obvious verses in the whole Bible. You got 12 guys walking. Two want, want extra special treatment. The other ten are like what are you talking about, dude? I mean, I can just imagine the conversations. Who do you guys think you are? Can you blame them? 
I'd be angry too. But you may recall that just one chapter earlier, Jesus was talking to them about a childlike faith, about humility, about the first being last, about the greatest becoming the servant. Apparently it fell on deaf ears. And now Jesus seizes this incredible teaching moment. Jesus calls them all together. Hey guys, come here. You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. If you thought that a lust for political power was a a new thing, family, (laughs) no, it goes back thousands of years. These, these people, they lusted after power. They wanted power. They had agendas they wanted to implement, power they wanted to exert, and most likely there were people that they wanted to oppress. This is the way of the world. Let's grab as much money, as much sex, as much power as we possibly can. Now, it's easy to criticize politicians, but don't you want power to... If you're really honest, don't you want power? Don't you want, wait for it, control? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I've heard so many people say, they're a control freak. They're a control freak. Forgetting that there's three fingers pointing back at themselves. They're a control freak. There's something inside all of us that we want control. We want power. We want it our way. Have you ever silently thought, I'm so glad I'm not like that person? Have you ever felt justified cutting in line or cheating because you felt better than another person? Have you ever experienced the feeling of entitlement? I thought so. See, Jesus is confronting this situation with his followers, saying this is what the world looks like. The world is all about power, about gripping power, seizing power. And then here's his response. I love this. Not so with you. This is the world. This is my kingdom. The two shall never meet. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. He doesn't say that they shouldn't aspire to be great. He just redefines what greatness is. See, he doesn't say, oh, you want to be great? No, you shouldn't be great. No, you shouldn't be great. You should be a loser. No, he doesn't say that. He defines greatness. He says, this is how the world defines greatness. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like a servant. It looks like someone being last instead of first. And by the way, I'm going to prove it to you. And he did a few days later on the cross. See, God's kingdom is upside down. It's upside down. It's the exact opposite of the world. I can't say this enough, family. You can follow the world or you can follow Jesus, but the two, they don't really meet. 
See, Jesus turned the whole story upside down. He turned it inside out. By the way, the word slave here, it's not like our understanding of slave from the Civil War, but rather a bondservant, someone who's working off a debt for a specific time. They could own property. They could obtain freedom. But Jesus' kingdom, it's an upside-down kingdom. And Jesus always backs up his words with actions. He always practices what he preaches. See, it's not like God came down and, and, and was floating around like a, a, an angel or a fairy or something and never got sick and tired and just, oh, here, this is, this is what an ideal life looks like. No, he was in the trenches, flesh and blood, experienced pain and hurt and temptation and brutality, anger, fear, Every emotion, every feeling that we have, he experienced it all because he wanted to show us what it means to truly be human. He practices what he preaches, and he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's Jesus with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, on the way for him to get killed. He's just told them exactly what would happen he knows his life will be given a ransom for theirs. He sacrificed his life to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And I say, hallelujah. N.T. Wright notes, the cross calls into question all human pride and glory. No wonder people reject Jesus. Days later, Jesus will be in his glory, but it won't be James and John, who are beside him. See, God became flesh and spent more than three decades serving, loving, showing us an example of true greatness. Furthermore, God proved his love for us by dying for us. Show me any religion with that love, that mercy, that grace. I'll sign up for it. Only a God like you could be worthy of my praise. That's our God. That's our King. So, so what? The, the true test of our spirituality, the true test of our faith, it's not how many rule, how many that we rule over but how many we serve. It's not about being in the right position of power, but in finding the right position for Jesus in our lives and in our communities. Andy Crouch, in his excellent book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, says this, Power is all about image-bearing, reflecting and refracting the creative power of the world's maker into the very good creation. And image-bearing is for flourishing, but as idolatry fills the world with false idols, proliferate, the image bearers lose their capacity to bear the true image. The more the image bearers lose this capacity, the more creation itself is diminished, reduced to utilitarian means to bitter ends. Idolatry is the true failure of power. That's rich. This flows perfectly with last Sunday's sermon on money. Our hearts are drawn to money, sex, and power for our sake. There's actually nothing inherently wrong with them, 
Money can be used to bless other people. Sex is a wonderful gift that God created for a husband and wife in marriage. And power, it can be leveraged for the benefit of others, to serve others. Power can bring about freedom for the powerless and injustice for the weak. The issue is the heart. Why do you want money? Is it for yourself or to bless other people? Why do you want sex? Is it for your personal pleasure or to enrich and enhance your marriage? Why do you want power? Is it to bless or to oppress? Crouch adds, every Maundy Thursday, the night before Good Friday, is the, in the Western liturgical calendar, Christians around the world gather to wash one another's feet. 2,000 years after the teacher and Lord knelt with a towel around his waist, his followers, servants, and messengers continue to imitate his example. There is no act of culture-making power more extraordinary than creating a ritual, an act that continues to bear witness to truth from generation to generation, long after the first persons who experienced it lay in the dust of death. The persistence down to this day of the act Jesus performed at that table and the acts from that night that the other Gospels report, taking blessing, breaking, and giving the bread and wine, is the ultimate test and sign of his power. In this moment, Jesus creates culture, forever transforming the meaning of towel, loaf, and cup, forever altering the way teachers and masters will see their roles and the way their students and servants will see them. Family, following Jesus means following his example of service, of washing feet, of daily sacrifice, of putting others first, of praying for one's bl blessings, praying for the, the blessings of one's enemies, blessing those who curse you. Could anything be more countercultural? I wish I could say that Christians model this really well, that we've never sought power, that we always put others above ourselves, that we are content to go last that we are known as servants. The great theologian Jimi Hendrix famously said, <clears throat> when the power of love takes over the love of power, that's when things will change. I think that's pretty good. Tony Campolo says this, a basic sociological principle is that you can't express love and power at the same time. Whenever you love, you lose power. Love makes you vulnerable. We have a God who loves us so much, he was willing to become vulnerable. Now, I have to admit, I've been embarrassed seeing so-called Christians clamor for power, particularly in, in this last year or so. I, I've just seen so many people just lusting after, seizing any sort of power they can get. And I look at this example of Jesus, and he says, not so with you. Not so with you. That's not the way my kingdom works. He had all power. He doesn't say be a doormat. He says serve. The example I've set for you is not to attain power for your own sake. It's to serve other people. He couldn't have been 
more clear. I know politics is messy, but our allegiance must never be to a president, but to a priest. The great high priest who's also a prophet and a king. His mission wasn't to seek power for himself. He came for the world. In fact, he gave us his power and authority for the sake of others. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. One final passage from Andy Crouch. There's no point in this story where Jesus gives us power. Instead, it's the culmination and the demonstration of his power. What Jesus gives us in this story is not power, but privilege and status. For those of us preoccupied with protecting our privilege and raising our status, this indifference of Jesus is terrifying. It prompts the kind of outburst that came from Peter. It's holy power, utterly purified without an ounce of self-protection or self-regard. Jesus' only use of power was to create, never to protect himself or to exalt himself. Perhaps this is the deepest explanation of his nonviolence. Violence, even when used in justifiable situations. Sorry, lost that. Violence, even when used in justifiable self-defense, does nothing to restore, redeem, or create. And that's what God does. He restores, he redeems, he creates. A new community among whom power would be always used and only for flourishing. In such a community, privilege and status can only be disdained and discarded. They are distractions from the real calling of image bearers to be fruitful and multiply far as the curse is found. To follow Jesus means rejecting the world. It means dying to self. It requires you to think and to act differently. There's no keeping up with the Joneses, giving them what they had coming to them, or telling them to pick up themselves by their bootstraps. Some might not even have bootstraps. We're told, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. This includes the unborn, yes. But it also includes the marginalized, the forgotten, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the refugee. See, family, we all have a certain amount of power. We all have a certain amount of control. It's limited, but we have power, we have control. The question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to use it? For your sake or for the sake of others? Jesus says what true greatness is, and he wants you to be great. He wants you to be great, but greatness is measured in servitude. It's measured in humility. It's measured in what you do for others. Again, this is not a message about trying harder. It's not a message about being a doormat, about abusing yourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is a message about God's kingdom being upside down and what it means to truly follow Jesus, to walk in his ways.